Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Happy Sunday to everybody. Um, I am privileged uh, to read to you a continuation of John 10, um, verses 11 to 18. It's always extra special. I was just telling Howard when the Bible in the U version is color red because it's actual quotes of Jesus. He is speaking to his followers. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in us the fire of your love. We pray for Andy today, use him mightily to speak to us so that we may learn. We pray that you open our hearts and our minds, that we may become better Christians and obedient to your word. We pray for Westminster Chapel, that you may use us well and further bring your kingdom. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. Good morning. Welcome to church today. My daughter this morning said to me, um, Shin has a big belly. Uh, uh, The lady who was wonderfully singing today, Shin has a big belly because she's got a baby in her belly. Daddy, you've got a big belly. Does that mean you've got a... (laughs) Totally unprompted. Where are we going today? Do you ever feel a little bit confused in the chaos of today's culture? Opinions everywhere, left and right, debates all over the place, various different leaders with different things to say, trying to lead people in this direction or that direction. It feels like every issue is a black or white thing and you have to take your stand this side or that. People want to know where you stand on this issue or that. Do you ever feel a little bit lost, a little bit confused? You open up a newspaper, you watch the Um, news on TV, you open up YouTube, social media, and there are thoughts and opinions everywhere. I get a bit lost in this chaos, and I don't know if you do as well, but the conviction I've come to today is preparing for this message and really trying to listen to what Jesus says in this passage, is that he's saying to each one of us today, I can lead you through this chaos because I've done it before. What do I mean by that? When Jesus started his ministry at the ripe old age of 30, he toured around Israel. And what did he find? He did not find 
a God-fearing nation where they were unified around one single purpose, led by good leaders, where they cared about the blessing that God had given them so that they could bless the people around them, where they looked after their neighbors and the needy and the oppressed and the outsider. That wasn't the nation that Jesus found. Jesus found a totally different nation where there was segregation, isolation, division everywhere. Tribal parties warring against one another, ideologies clashing, everyone thinking that they were right. And in the midst of all of that, who is it that is usually harmed the most? It's the most needy. It's the most outside of the inner ring. It's the outsiders. It's the fatherless. It's the widows. It's the poor and the needy. Those are the ones who are harmed the most in such a society. We even hear it across the Gospels as Jesus tours around Israel to find out what it's like. What's the state of Israel at the moment? He finds that there, in certain pockets of society, it's described, there are multitudes of the paralyzed, the lame, and the blind. Crowds of people described as helpless and harassed, like sheep without shepherds. Should this have been the state of the nation of Israel, the, the, the nation that God had chosen? No. But in all of the various different leaders trying to take people this way or that way, this is what was created, an absolute turmoil and mess. And in John chapter 9, so the chapter before where we've just read, we zoom into one of those individuals' lives. And if you were here last week, Shagan touched on it a little bit. Um, this individual, this blind man, he'd been blind his whole life. He'd never been able to see, always relying on what he heard people saying. It's likely that he was near the synagogue. He heard the teachings that came out of the synagogues. And essentially, that's probably what he grew up believing. And then we read this about this man's experience. Try and put yourself in his shoes. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. And Jesus' disciple asked Jesus, Rab, it's nice when you're being talked about by other people within your earshot, isn't it? The disciples are talking about the man who's maybe just over here, saying to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents so that he was born blind? And then Jesus answered, it wasn't, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then fast forwarding a bit. Having said these things within the earshot of the crowd, within the earshot of his disciples, within the earshot of this man who's just perhaps sitting here, only just listening to all this stuff going on around him. Jesus then spits on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, now go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Now, have you ever, if you've ever read this story before, have you ever stopped at this point in the story to wonder what on earth was going through this man's head. Because he is mid-miracle. He's just heard from this rabbi that you should now, after I've just smothered mud in your face, you should now go and wash it off yourself. 
what's the man thinking? He hasn't suddenly got his eyesight back at this point. He is walking blind with his face covered in dirt, vaguely hoping that perhaps something's going to happen if he washes his face, but at least he's just going to get the dirt off his face. I wonder, some of you might be mid-miracle. Someone in here might be believing for something to happen. You may be praying earnestly for yourself or for a loved one that God will do a miracle. Perhaps you've received words into your life, prophetic words, to shape your future. And you're believing those, but you're mid-miracle. You're walking by faith. The thing hasn't happened yet. How does it feel? I think it feels quite disorienting, can be confusing, can be like walking in darkness. And it's not just that, because think about what the man has just heard as he was sitting here, crouching here perhaps, and there were people talking about him. This rabbi has just pulled the rug from under his culture's perception of things. Did you notice it? The disciples were talking about a concept that was generally agreed in their culture. Bad things happen to bad people. You are worse off than me because you are worse than me. Who was it who sinned? This man is blind. It must be someone's fault. Now, I've experienced this for myself. I was always fascinated by this um, experience. I used to work with our debt center where we helped people who uh, were in financial debt, trying to get them out of uh, that situation. And if I would ever tell people that uh, I was doing this, especially around Clapham, which is where I live, and especially at Clapham Hockey Club, I know every stereotype is uh, going off. At Clapham Hockey Club, I would occasionally tell people um, that this was what I did. And it was amazing how quickly they were willing to share their opinion about why my clients were in debt. Having never met them, having never understood their situation, why these people had got into such a situation, it's got to have been their fault or their parents' fault or their culture's fault. And if, if only they lived in this way that I live, they wouldn't be in such a situation. Or I even saw on the news recently on BBC a piece about the horrors of what's happened in Turkey, the earthquake and the aftermath of that. And for a couple of minutes, it was good documentary. It was showing the realities and the horrors and the agony of what's going on. The real pain, the real discomfort, the occasional joy of someone being rescued, but the general sense of total horror and agony. But what worried me was the speed with which that news piece went on to a much longer piece about essentially whose fault this was. The architects, the politicians, this, that, and the other. And I think what worried me the most is in me, this sense of unease and discomfort at watching the reality suddenly disappeared because, ah, finally we can point a finger at someone. That made me feel better. It was a much longer thing and it was just focused now and it, it sort of removed the fog because it is simpler, isn't it? To live in a world that's very black and white where you can just say, well, it's their fault. It's their fault. 
That was the simplicity of the world that this man was living in. He'd grown up with this attitude and understanding of the world. And Jesus, this rabbi at this point to this man, in an instant had dismissed this entire worldview. <coughs> but what's maybe more confusing is Jesus didn't just leave it there. Jesus then brought God into the equation, which I think for this man would have been a bigger mind bender. He'd grown up thinking he was blind and it was either his fault or his parents' fault somehow. This new rabbi had just said, no, that's not the case. It was so that God could be revealed. Now, how does that answer the pain and suffering? How does that simplify things? It doesn't, does it? This man is now walking to this pool, covered in dirt, thinking, why has God allowed this to happen to me then? If it wasn't as simple as, oh, it's my fault, then why would God allow this to happen to me? And that is the Christian experience. Jesus doesn't lead you into a world of simplicity. He leads you into reality. Things are more complex than our culture would like to make it seem. Simplified philosophies that make it all about essentially this or that. The reality that Jesus brings us into is far more complex. And the Christian experience is being able to sit in that discomfort until you hear a word from God. And here's what perhaps makes it even more bizarre. The man gets to the pool, collects some water, wipes it over his eyes, thinking, ah, oh, last my face is just clean. And then for the first time, he sees. Now that's got to be disorienting in itself. Suddenly seeing the world through a new pair of eyes. And then he's walking back, thinking, so God allowed this to happen to me, and now he's healed me. What do I do with that? And I've seen that in people's lives in this church. You've gone through the worst of suffering, and yet there's been answers to prayers in the midst of that. There's been miracles. That's bizarre, isn't it? How someone can be in hospital, dying from a certain condition, and yet God answers prayers about the right doctor being in the right place at the right time, or the test results, and this and that. Or you're in an accident, and suddenly there's someone there, right at the right moment, to help you. And yet, God allowed the accident. Do you understand the tension that Christians live in? This man was experiencing all of that. But what's the one thing he should have been reassured of? As he's walking home trying to figure out, he's looking at faces. He doesn't know who they are at this point because he only knows them by hearing. He's waiting for them to talk. What is he expecting to experience? Surely it is celebration. People are like, wow, you've come back and look at what's happened to you. Surely he's expecting hugs, jubilation, celebration. Instead, he gets accusation and um, interrogation. Because this is what he experiences. First, his friends, his neighbors say to him, not congratulations, they say, explain it to us. Explain this in detail. What happened? How did it happen? Tell us. He tries his best, as you try your best to explain why you follow Jesus and walk with him and all of that. You try your best, 
And they're like, no, 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 that's not what we wanted. We're going to drag you to the Pharisees now. Dragged to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, if you don't know, they were essentially the religious influencers of the day. They were the authority figures when it came to the teaching of the Bible. The Pharisees say to him, this was not of God. This man is not from God. How intimidating must that feel? I don't know if you've been watching the Christian media, for some of you, you may. There's been um, a worship service happening in Kentucky amongst uh, young people, students and that kind of thing. And it was a worship service. It was a relatively average preach like this one's going to be and then some worship at the end. But that worship carried on for more than like 10 days and it's still going and thousands of people have gone to it and huge numbers of people have become Christians for the first time, experienced God's love and his forgiveness, experienced this new birth, the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Can you imagine the feeling of those guys, they're logging onto YouTube for the first time trying to learn about this Christianity that now they're in and they believe in. And all across YouTube, are videos of authority figures, preachers, saying, this is not God. People who've never been there, people who've never seen it in detail, felt the need to go to YouTube and make an absolute statement, this is not God. How intimidating must they feel? Intimidated must that new believer feel in that moment? They hardly know anything except what they've experienced from God, and they're being told by the culture that they've just entered into, this isn't real. So then it escalates, because at this point, where would you hope to find support and strength? Well, surely it's your family. Surely at this point, when everything seems against you, your family are going to at least back you up, aren't they? His parents are dragged before the religious authorities and interrogated themselves. And instead of saying what they knew to be the case, which was this was Jesus, he healed him. They knew that the name of Jesus wasn't really allowed in the synagogues at that point, And so they didn't mention him. They slightly shrunk back. They minimized the information that they knew because they were scared. Now that's got to be a painful place to be seeing your own family members drifting away, falling back. People who you had grown up thinking they are the strong ones in, their, in this faith, assimilating into culture. Now, I'm from a different background. I'm from an atheist background where none of us believed it, so I'm just the weird one. But some of you I know have this pain, seeing fa uh, parents, siblings, close friends, who seems to be strong in the faith, now drifting. And that is a tension deep inside of you. What do you do with it? And then maybe it gets the most heightened at this point, when the Jews, these were their ultimate authorities across the synagogues, pointed the finger directly at this man and said, you know, if you believe this, you are evil. You're on the side of the devil because this Jesus is demon-possessed. If you believe this, you are evil. If you choose to believe this version of Christianity, 
take it aside, the version of Christianity on certain matters that has been the version of Christianity from the very beginning of the church, historically and currently globally, is the version of Christianity. But in this specific uh, era that we're in, in the UK, if you believe this version of Christianity, you are evil. We're seeing this happen in Scotland with one of the potential MPs at the moment. But you might feel it in the environment that you're in. If you, if, are you genuinely deciding to go with that version of Christianity rather than all the other versions of Christianity that are out there? Well, you're evil if you believe that. Every single finger has just been pointed at this man. After this miracle experience, this storm of chaos and confusion around him, and I just want to take a moment for you to reflect because I believe if you're a believer, one of these is going to have stood out to you as, yeah, that's an experience I face. So just take a moment in silence. Just reflect on the one that is closest to you, to your mind at the moment. Lord, you know our thoughts. Please meet with us in this tense moment of where we're trying to figure out. There's stuff surfacing in our minds and we want to respond to you and we want to hear your voice. And that's what we do. It's into that sea of chaos that Jesus speaks the words of the passage for today. I am the good shepherd. Now, for a Jew, it would have been realized this was not, at this point, he's not really saying a metaphor. At other points, the metaphor builds up of God being like a shepherd. At this point, I don't think it's primarily a metaphor of the way that God cares for you. This is a political statement. Because hundreds of years before, under the reign of some of the kings who were absolutely awful in the state of Israel, the nation was as divided as it was in Jesus' time. This is hundreds of years before, and God sent some prophets to speak to the nation and to say to the nation what he was planning to do. And what those prophets said was, God is going to send a new leader to take over the leadership of the nation. If you know the story, a bit like David took over the leadership from Saul, who had been uh, supposedly in charge of everyone, and then David came and took charge of the whole nation. God said, I'm going to do that again through the line of David. Someone is going to come, and he will be called, what? He will be known as, this is like the wrestling entrance move, you know, the rock has arrived. No one knows wrestling, maybe. Um, or the undertaker, or Kate. I'm just old, aren't I? Um, the wrestling name of this character who's going to arrive is The Shepherd. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. In the hearing of all the religious authorities of the day, I am the shepherd. Now that's a political explosion. I am the good shepherd. He then goes on to say, after saying the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, he then goes on to say, hypothetically, he who is a hired hand is not a shepherd 
does not own the sheep. Now, no points for guessing who he's referring to at this point. As those religious leaders and the Pharisees are all standing there, and he's sort of talking to this blind man, but also talking to those around, he says, he who is a hired hand, he doesn't, he is not a shepherd, he's not recognized by God, God it does not endorse this kind of leadership, and he doesn't own the sheep. Can you imagine how freeing that would have been for this man who'd been blind, who'd been under the control of the voices of these specific people his whole life. He'd been controlled by them, everything that they said went, it dictated his entire life. And Jesus has just said, they don't own you. Imagine how furious they would have felt in this moment. Because they've had so much sway, so much power, so much control. And Jesus is walking in, one by one, taking people out of their control. They don't own you. The voices that are telling you, you must do this, you must believe this, you must say this, you must act this way. Even your own parents... Those voices, they do not own you. Because I am the good shepherd. At this point, he then goes on to separate himself from these individuals. What's his claim versus theirs? Well, he says, when the hired hand sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and he flees. He runs away and the wolf comes in and snatches the sheep and scatters them. The hired hand leaves the sheep because he cares nothing for them. These leaders do not care about you. Then Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. As the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. You see, so much of leadership is about the power that you get from doing it, the prestige you get from doing it, or the paycheck. And those are deep down the the reasons that those leaders are in those positions. Why is Jesus in his position of leadership? Is it for the paycheck? Is it for the power or the prestige? It was for the people. He knows his own. His own knows me. His own know him. Just as he's always known the Father for eternity. And that's the experience that he wants for human beings. It's all about the people. It's not about the power. It's not about what you can get from leadership. And now I'm going to say something that might land difficultly. That's a word. Probably that phrase landed difficultly. Um, Because of your experience. But I'm going to say this. This is why theoretically... The church should be the best place for any human being to become what God wants them to become. Because the leader has set the pattern of leadership. Every pastor, every deacon, every elder, everyone in pastoral leadership of any kind should only be there because of their love for the people. Not their love for the power the paycheck or the prestige or anything like that. It should be for the welfare and the good of the people who are there because that is the example that we've been set. Now, I know for some of you that is the ideal, but it's not the reality. 
But that is the standard set by our chief shepherd, and it must be what we aspire to. And so therefore, there is no other place in the world where that is actually the template. So therefore, the church is going to be the best place for you to become what God wants you to become as you grow, as you develop, as you walk with him. Being involved properly in a church. But here's the thing, and this is kind of the elephant in the room if we switch analogies. <laughs> what good is a dead shepherd? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus, up until this point, sounds like quite a kamikaze shepherd. He keeps saying, I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. Which is all well and good. It's very inspiring, isn't it? Imagine being those sheep. Imagine being the sheep where you hear your shepherd keep saying, I'm going to lay down my life for you guys. I'm going to do it. And then one day, he runs and he dies in the mouth of the wolf. Great! And then the wolf digests the shepherd... Who's next? Uh. Exactly. <laughs> the pessimist in the front. <laughs> Inspiration fizzles out, doesn't it? Every movement in history has been led by a committed, perhaps inspiring leader. Many movements in history have been led by leaders who were willing to die for the cause. Great. Some have even died in the midst of going for the cause. That's wonderful. It is amazing. But that's not the church. And that is not how the Christian movement has spread and continues to spread. It is not by inspiration. It's not that we are inspired by a great leader who once died for the cause. Because that kind of inspiration fizzles out eventually. We are unique in our movement called Christianity because we're led by the guy who died for the cause. This is why Jesus emphasizes this. He says, for this reason the Father loves me, that I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the charge that I've received from my Father. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Setting himself apart. Christianity is the only movement where the leader died for the cause and then continued to lead the movement after his death because he rose again. Imagine it. Here's all the sheep and there's the wolf. The wolf represents everything that could separate a human being from God. Sin, Satan, death. And the shepherd stands in the way of the wolf, grabs it and takes it off the edge of a cliff. Dies with the wolf. And how are the sheep feeling? Well, we know because it's documented. The sheep scatter. They're terrified now. They're shepherdless. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. And they were like that for three days. Until one by one, they heard the voice of the shepherd again, calling them back. And then as time went on, that shepherd went to further sheep who lived in further lands. And he called them in by name as well. 
and he started to gather a bigger movement that had ever, than had ever been seen before. And what was different now? There was no wolf. There was nothing for the sheep to be scared of. He had taken the sheep, uh, the wolf, what have I just said? Wolf. <laughs> he had taken the wolf off the cliff and he had climbed back from the valley of the shadow of death to be with his sheep again. He is alive and he is working and he is the leader of this church, of this flock, of the flock worldwide. He is the good shepherd. Now what effect would this have had on this once blind man who is now just learning about the world for the first time through these new lenses? After he'd seen this shepherd chap die but then rise again, Imagine how he would have faced the world. Full of the Holy Spirit, now able to experience calm in the midst of chaos, knowing the one that is leading him, being able to walk through every valley of the shadow of death because he knows his shepherd is alive, he's not dead. That's the change that can happen in your life. That's the confidence you can have. I'm going to finish here because we want to worship and we want to respond. And I really want people to respond in prayer. If any of these things have sprung up to you, have resonated, this is the feeling of my life at the moment. These are the voices around me. This is the chaos. This is the confusion. And I need to hear a word from the Good Shepherd. Please do respond. As you can see, we've done a radical shift. We've moved our prayer zone from here to here. Because... Last week, more of you were sat over here, but it seems like you've <laughs> flocked over here. I don't know what's going on. But at least when the kids parade through, you're not going to be interrupted. So this is the area where we're going to say respond to prayer. Throughout the next half an hour as we worship and as we uh, cue band, um, as we worship and as we respond, we would love to people share prophetic words, things that they believe that God has said off the back of this perhaps or whatever. We would love people to head over for prayer and to really respond to God and say, yes, this is my experience. We really want to hear him speak to us today and guide us through whatever you're going through. So why don't we take a moment to pray? If you stand, we'll get ready to sing. Lord Jesus, when you say, I am the good shepherd, you're not trying to create comfortable followers, you're creating calm followers. People who will follow you wherever you take them and trust you whatever you do. In the midst of the tension, not ignoring the confusion, but living in this reality now, because we know that you're a shepherd who is taking us to somewhere where the grass is greener on the other side. It may be the other side of the grave, we don't know. But Lord, there is a new heaven and new earth coming, and you are the only leader who could take any human being into that place. So please fill this room with hope, with faith, with love and confidence, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. 
If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.